This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, morning, Professor Report Scott here in the Manly Warhog Man Cave, a piney, nippily cool, I guess, frosted pasture. Piney Woods of North Central Florida. That's a mouthful, wasn't it? I got through it. And, of course, in the Mellon Law Studio, Mellon Law is the only official law firm partner of the Florida Gators. And, of course, protected 24-7 by crime prevention. And brought to you by all our great sponsors that you will see scrolling by our screen. Um, the title of today's show, by the way, drinking a cup of caliber coffee. And if you buy Caliber Coffee, we get a little bit of cut of that. And we can buy, you can buy ammunition there. And, and of course, buy coffee. Now we're also sponsored by Shoot GTR. And that's a great range. So we are all in for them, of course. And we're all in for the coffee for sure. And what you do after that is kind of your, your gig, but they are certainly offering, um, a big deal this time, I think, on ammunition. If you use Ward, 15, you'll get 15% off. Um, and the coffee comes in all kinds of options, so it's a, it's a good deal. I'm looking at the people signing on today. Good morning, everybody. This is um, show today is titled The Day of Infamy. And December 7th, and I thought I'd take a while and do this show with you um, for the first half. My recollections of how that day affected our family and me and the rest of us. Now, I'm of the age where I'm getting to be one of the last surviving children, if you will, of the deceased parents of that war. There's some guys still around. My mother lived to be 107 and a half, but my father died in his late 50s, really from the combat effects of the war. So that, that, that bunch is about gone. I am now, believe it or not, 81. And uh, it won't be long before I'll be happy trails again uh, with Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Well, the stories that I tell about this are stories that were in our family that were told to me. And as life went on, it became even more relevant. Production has uh, some pictures of scrapbooks entries that my mother kept 
throughout the war. Once I was sired, if you will, I didn't see my father until the war was over. I was about four when he came home. He's a total stranger to me. Um, Zach, let's put up one of the clippings, and I can tell you a little bit about it. There we are. Oh, this is a, um, we sink a Jap convoy to Leyte is one of the clippings we have up now. Now, people don't understand that this Leyte battle went on, as I remember it being told, after the Japanese surrendered. And it was a ferocious, bloody battle. And it had probably the greatest use of kamikazes. And my father was on many a troop ship that was attacked by kamikazes. And he tells the story of one of the gunners that shot one of the kamikazes out of the sky that would have done their ship in being a black guy. So we had integrated forces in World War II. Right there, side by side. Now, notice the word Jap. Um, I got to tell you that, thank you, Ward Fletcher. I got to tell you that um, If you look at these clippings, you'll see that uh, political correctness did not matter. Personal feelings and looks did not matter. We weren't tippy-toeing around this battle. We were going to win it. And we were going to do whatever it took to win it. Sinking convoys. And we kept escalating until you know what we culminated in. And we didn't start it. They, of course, started it with Pearl Harbor. My mother always told the story of she and her brother, my uncle, and my father, her husband, being at a little picnic. And listening to a portable little radio or some sort of radio. And they just spread the food out, spread the tablecloth out, listening to the radio and the news, whatever was interrupted with the news of Pearl Harbor. My mother said that the three of them never said anything to each other after that newsflash. They quietly ate their lunch, got up, terminated the picnic, folded up the tablecloth, and from that point on went their separate ways. My father immediately began to train in the desert to fight Rommel 
in Africa. My uncle, who was a whiz mechanic, went on to become the crew chief on the B-17s. My father always told the story that they trained him to fight Rommel by training him in the desert and then sent him to the Pacific. A father was not a lover of the government. He thought the government almost never got it right. Almost never got it right. They sent him to the Pacific there, where he was in the swamps, in the amphibious landings, the 77th Division Combat Engineers. I have in the attic, and I don't go into them much, haven't been in them in years, wrapped in twine and handwritten envelopes addressed back and forth to each other, letters between my mother and my father. Throughout his duration in the Pacific Theater, And they are filled with what ifs. And my father was very concerned about whether my mother would be taken care of, constantly on her about take care of your assets, plan for the worst. I don't expect to be back. He had the Purple Heart, Bronze Star, Silver Star, whatever. He had all all kinds of medals didn't mean much to him. We had to collect them up and put them on display. He didn't. He had them in a box. So I didn't know it. And when he came home, it was like we we're perfect strangers. And we didn't get along. Who was this guy who came busting into my life? Who was in a hurry to get started again? Who was he and my mother pushing me through school? 15 years old when I was a senior. They were tremendously my mother and my father. Having nothing when they were growing up wanting to do the best they could with their natural gifts, initiative, hard work, and they did. And they felt cheated by the war. They had just gotten a good job. My father was a city engineer for East St. Louis and the war broke out. And when he came back, he had to start all over again from scratch. four or five years of his best productive time. He didn't want to stay in the military. He was lieutenant colonel when he came out. Didn't want to stay in it. And was a Republican. And I can remember 
the political discussions ensuing before I was even old enough to know what was going on when my grandfather, who was my mother's father, was a Democrat. And there'd be all these discussions around the table about where we're going into the future with these parties. The first political party I can remember, the first political event was the election of Eisenhower. Eisenhower, I like Ike. That was a little button everybody wore. I like Ike. And Eisenhower became our president. My father always admired Truman. Because as you can see here, atomic bomb unleashed. My father was scheduled for the amphibious invasion of Japan. He said that we would have gotten our butts kicked. He tremendously respected the Japanese fighter. The Japanese fighter was a warrior. You had to burn him out of those caves. You had to absolutely kill him or he would kill you. No qualms about it. And he was in a troop ship when the atomic bomb was dropped. And he admired Truman for doing it because we would have been wiped out. The Japanese would have fought to protect their home if they could. And so many parallels now are in my mind. The Jewish people, homeless, finally with a home, get their home invaded. They're going to fight. They're going to fight to the death now. That's just a human instinct. Sherman to defeat the South had to kill. Grant lost seven times as many men to kill one Southerner as the Southerners did because that's what it took because the Southerner was protecting his home. The big mistake that Lee made, and nobody wants to say it because everybody admired Lee, is he went to Pennsylvania. Stay out of their stay out of their home. Until he went to Pennsylvania, there were a lot of people didn't really have their heart in a fight. So because of World War II, I see these things in this perspective. I see a long chain of nothing but turmoil because we gave up our position of power and influence, which we had won. See this? 10,000 Yanks. Toil on Leyte. We gave up all that. And look what happened. Now, every Chihuahua, every Dachau thinks he can bug the Doberman because there is no Doberman. There is no Rottweiler. 
There is no alpha dog. That's my perspective from 81, looking back. And now, you have yours. You might think I'm completely all wet, completely off base. But this is the way my generation of what's left of us sees it, okay? A lot of the guys I talk to. So let's flip another clipping up there, my man, Zach, and we'll show. Um, I'm a little behind you, so. Drop second atomic bomb. Awesome. They weren't going to quit after the first one. And I was talking to some guys, came to see me yesterday here at the compound. A little bit older than they are. They wanted to hear some of the story I'm sharing with you. They wanted to know what I thought about Russia and what, you know, all the stuff with Hamas. I said, well, I guess the only thing we can say, and you can't say anything with surety, dropping that second atomic bomb, I'm going to say it in really hard terms, evaporating a city, evaporating a city. I can't help with that, but you can change it in settings. That's Siri, little Siri listening to me on my little deal here. Isn't that something? Evaporating a city. Uh, has left a profound image, has it not, in the collective imagination of the human race. Uh, they're not too anybody with his head on right anxious to see that again. Now, Plantation Mark knows this, the submariners, one submarine with its Merv warheads can launch nuclear winter. What is nuclear winter? Well, it would be the creation of of killing photosynthesis, blocking the sun from so much. And I think this is the one that says the dust rises, or maybe I didn't put it up there. Um, there was so much dust over that city after that those bombs. So if we fired the load on one sub, the speculation is we'd create a issue for soap photosynthesis, much like supposedly the, the meteorite did that wiped out the dinosaur. I don't know. I'm not a physicist. I don't know the truth of that. 
but it's in people's imaginations and minds that it's so horrific. But let me just share with you something. All this talk about separating Hamas from the Palestinians Ah, uh-uh. go take a look at this. We didn't separate. We didn't separate civilians at all in Nagasaki, Hiroshima. In fact, we killed 80,000 civilians in each drop. We gave up the position of power from that. When did we do that? When I think we became afraid of our own power. The first time I saw it was a little kid with Korea, with the F-86 Saber jet and the MiG fighter. Many dogfights in Korea. MacArthur went in, I think it was Pusan, pushed them to the sea, then went into China, across the Yalu River, and Truman fired him. There was always a battle, as I understand it, between the military and the civilian leadership of the military. And that was probably the most profound moment of it in my life. And when Truman fired MacArthur, MacArthur, the same Truman who dropped the bomb, then we were destined one school of thought, hear me out, We were destined to screw up Vietnam. We just didn't know what to do. My father came to us and said, they're not going to try to win that war. You need to stay out of that. If they're going to try to win it, that's something else. But my father, who was in this war, which we won, firmly believed we'd never try to win another one after that, ever, because we had frightened ourselves. We had put ourselves in a position where we had awesome power, so much power. And, of course, it started the arms race. Kennedy didn't know what to do with it. And we know now that Castro begged Truchev to let him fire atomic missiles at 
USA. I was working at the Mariana Missile Factory when that when that all broke out. We went on the highest possible work you could go on. All the men that were my bosses were men who had survived World War II. You should have seen them. They were petrified. They thought this is it. This is going to be the atomic war. And we're going to obliterate the earth. World War II is ended as Japanese formally surrendered. The Russians, of course, had been heavily involved in getting Hitler. And they were actually an ally. But at Potsdam, Roosevelt was sick. And Stalin was cold and ruthless. And he started, of course, the Iron Curtain. When I came to the University of Florida in 1961, the first course we took in our institutions class was Americanism versus Communism. My class was taught by Dr. Spanier, whom I tremendously respected. I was coming from military school. I was coming from a family that had been in the war. And the worst part of it, the worst kinds of places in it. Because now, if you have those conversations or can have them in the university, look what the lefties have called you now for having that conversation. They weren't even around See another headline, please, Zach. I haven't been looking to tell you the truth. I've been talking. Flip another one up there and let me comment on it. Atomic bomb unleashed. One hell of a headline. Sink Jap convoy to Lake. Yeah, run them through quickly like that, Zach. Yanks on Lake. Boy, what a battle. Read about that one. World War II ended. Japanese formally surrender. Drop second atomic bomb. Look at those yellowed headlines. Look who our ally is now. Look who our, this is another thing. Look who our biggest ally is. Japan. Japan. I've got so I got a whole scrapbook of this stuff. I wanted to give you a little trip down memory lane. I hope it's not too disjointed for you. But uh, it was uh, there in my collection of photos, and. Um, 
I got to looking around and I didn't think too many people were saying much about December 7th and that maybe I ought to pull those out. Um, and uh, I'm watching Ward Fletcher's comments. Ward, I think what happens, the reason you have Germany and Japan as an ally where once they were enemies, they respect, here I go back to my hypothesis. They respect power. They want to be on the right side of power. Because power will protect them. It's a lot better than being on the wrong end of power. But we've abdicated all that. We've squandered it. We've not had any consistent foreign policy. Remember, go back. My father couldn't stand the federal government. They trained him to fight Rommel. He never went to Africa. They didn't train him to go to the Pacific Theater. where he stayed. You always thought that was kind of a symbol of government. It's um, a lack of consistency in foreign policy. It changes every four years. Or can They're trying to talk out of both sides of the mouth right now with this Israeli thing. That ain't going to get it, in my humble opinion. You got to, you got to be the, you got to be the dog. You spend all kinds of money on it. You can't pay other people to do it for you. And we did away with our draft, our conscription. Our own citizens don't have to do anything. Look, look, look at them. They don't have to pay a price to be a part of the country. So they criticize the country, and they're susceptible to every single dog and pony show that comes along. And they're killing the universities. Just looking at the comments. Well, that's one half our treatment of the way in which one old timer here sees it with his scrapbook and these letters in the attic and and um, the history of it from our perspective. Soon we'll be gone, and it won't be anybody who knows anything about these things. And, you know, thank goodness my mother kept this scrapbook. A lot of work and care went into this.
Well, if you want to put something in the chat line, I'll see you in a minute. We're going to take a break right now for the weather. Be right back on the Word Scott Files. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. The Kiera Grace Foundation proudly presents an evening with Tim Tebow. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, Large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Wardscott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. A warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! All right, welcome back to Ward's Weather Report, brought to you by Chevron Stations, Lewis Oil. 38 degrees, my little computer says right now, and it's going up to only 67 today here at the Manly Wardall compound. And uh, see what else we got in store here. It'll warm up after this. It, it'll warm up. We're just going to have a little snap here. So, uh, ironically, according to uh, one of the weather. apps here, 2023 will officially be the hottest year on record. Huh? That sounds like a little bit of that climate change stuff to me. Oh, yeah. It's CNN. Well, of course it would be. I, I can't trust CNN. It starts out with this sentence. Earth's temperature was off the charts this year. 
And scientists just confirmed that much of the planet already felt coming. 2023, officially, the hottest year on record. Well, 1.4 degrees Celsius warmer than pre-industrial levels. Uh, And here's the kicker. Close to the 1.5 degree threshold in the Paris Agreement, and beyond which scientists say humans and ecosystems will struggle to adapt. Uh, I'm sorry. I don't know about them. I mean, you govern yourself accordingly. Well, 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 we were talking about the universities and how they're different now. I was in them. You know, uh, I was a professor for, God knows, let's see, from 1969 to 2007 or 8. I don't know. Almost 40 years, I guess. Almost 40. Um, I'm looking at this character who was on Channel 20 and who dressed down the president of the university saying he didn't really know what he was doing. Sass. That he, Ortez, was leaving. Because it was just too dictatorial around here. It's too restrictive. And that was just a big threat to the University of Florida. He happened to be custodian of Sam Proctor oral history chair at Florida. A nice man who wasn't even remotely when I knew him interested in these events so much as he was going back in the past and interviewing people before they died and getting their version of history. And not tampering with what they said. We have out on Ward's Hot Bulletin Board, been there for quite a while, the proof that what Ortiz, O-R-T-I-Z, Ortiz is saying is poppycock. Shall we use that? 
Hoppycock. Let me pull up his comments here. Channel 20. You heard me complain about him one time. Never gave another point of view. Never gave another point of view about professors leaving the UF at some huge rate. By the way, do you know what attracts students in the greatest numbers to apply to the University of Florida? I know this because I was a Senate president at Santa Fe, and we were tracing this data because we get a lot of the spillover. Guys that were rejected from Florida, Florida takes 5,000 freshmen a year. At the time, that seemed what they were doing. 5,000. They have 25,000 applicants. That number is up around 25,000, which is the larger number of the applicants. And what do you think causes the applicant pool to swell? The single most important driver of an increased number of applicants to the university. The success of the football team. Have you ever read that anywhere? Has anybody ever pointed that out? This is why it's important to do actual research. The greatest increase in applicants to the University of Florida occurs when the football team has its best record. Has its best record. Professors that I had here have been here for 20, 30 years. Meanwhile, Ortez, and of course, who picks up the article? The New York Times. He's a union member. He's a member of the United Faculty of Florida. About when I was involved with all this stuff, but at the most, I'm, I'm doing it from memory now, 10% of the faculty in Florida belong to the union. The faculty that are concerned with their subject matter don't want to get anywhere near the union because that's yet another administration. They've got one administration. That's their chairman, chairperson, their department, 
That's who makes the decisions about them. Their chair. They don't have to please two people, their chair and a union guy. So you got this guy, Ortiz. Saying that he can't teach anymore because he's being told what to teach. This was the chair, actually the dean, which is over the chair, of the dance department. In a letter addressed to the UF dance students, and this was a while back when this was leaked to me, about September of 19, 2019. That's how long this has been going on there. It's out on Ward's Hot Bulletin Board. The faculty members of the dance area join alumni and current students' condemnation of systemic racism in the School of Theater and Dance. The faculty members of the dance area of the School of Theater and Dance emphatically condemn global, get this phrase, global anti-blackness, including the brutal murders of black people and the economic, political, educational, and health systems that devalue black life. Okay, let's let's look at that picture, Zach, of the uh, hospital. This sign, now this is 2023. This letter was written around 2000. 20, or about 2019, 2020, is now on the wall in a room at Shands. You can look at it. It's in the UF Neuromedicine Diversity and Inclusion Committee. And look at it. We understand, accept, and value the difference among people which is all code word, but we aren't racist. What has that got to do? That goes without saying. What has that got to do with your need or the skilled professors of the neuromedicine department? Are you saying that if you didn't have this committee, these guys would be kicking, well, this code here, black people down the road? Well, yeah, that's what this is saying, only more blatantly. It's addressed to the students. 
That right there is addressed to the patients. This all was done under Fox when he was a president. He buckled under to all this stuff. He let all this stuff flourish. The Board of Regents said, we're getting too many complaints from students who didn't come to the university to be told that they are systemic racists. They came to the university to get an education. Then, Sam Proctor, he was called the Dean of State History. I looked him up, died in 2005. He had a long and distinguished chapter in the history of the University of Florida. He was a friend of Bob Graham, Senator Graham, whom I knew very well. And he was a very good friend of Father Michael Gannon, whom I knew very well. Who would no more write a letter like this? A professor's union says that Florida higher ed policies must be fought tooth and nail. I'm comparing my experience in education to what these guys say. I had no censorship in my classes, and nobody from the administration ever told me I had to have a censorship in any form. I taught the subject. Nobody ever messed with me. And I was the president of the Senate. I, I, I knew all these guys, these union guys. I rubbed elbows with them. Some of them were good teachers. But they were very left. Very left. Very anti-American. 
Very anti-American. Shocking. Really kind of shocking. Now, somebody like Heather McDonald, whom I tremendously respect, she is a member of the Manhattan Institute, studies race relations, black race, you name it. She's been watching the House hearing on campus anti-Semitism. And, boy, that was a doozy to watch that woman from Harvard. You would think she had marbles in her mouth. She didn't want to own up to anything that there was anti-Semitism on the campuses. But, McDonald is interested, not whether or not it's there, but why is it's there? It's there because of anti-Western ethics. That's us. Anti-Western ethics. They, she writes that in elite schools, Those elite schools once upon a time disdained Jews because they were seen as outsiders to Western civilization. Western civilization dropped those two bombs, you know. Now Jews are reviled as that civilization's very embodiment. See the linkage? So if you hate Western civilization, it follows you hate Jews because they are the embodiment of Western civilization. Because what is wrong with the Western civilization? It's built on white supremacism and oppression. Well, I just showed you the letter. That's out on the bulletin board we posted. It proves what she's saying. The attack on the Jews in Israel is an attack on the Western civilization. And we can have a whole other class on what is Western civilization. What do you think putting Trump on trial is about? Heather McDonald has it nailed. White supremacists, evangelical Christians, white opponents of mass migration from Muslim countries, former Trump administration officials. Doubters about the Black Lives Matter 
movement. They are all enemies of the political left that is now pretty much running Congress. Do you get how all this works now? I had some friends out here yesterday and they said, how much longer are you going to be doing the show since you're 81? I said, it's a good question. I said, I know so darn much now that I feel like I can't quit. Quite frankly, I don't know anybody who can put all these dots together. I mean, I, I, I'd hand it over to them. I'd say, here, you, you, you run with it now. I can't listen to any shows on Fox. I mean, I, I laugh at them. But what they don't do, what they don't cover, how deeply they don't go. And Congress is just a huge joke. Just a huge joke. I watched the school board. You've got to be kidding me. They're complaining about this guy. They don't want to give 225 to to be the superintendent. They give the city manager of Gainesville 250. What's going on? Kidding me? Well, that's the show for today, the day of infamy. Got my guest Phil Kirpin tomorrow from the American Commitment think tank in D.C. Always learn something from Phil. Appreciate your comments on the chat line. Appreciate your support. Check back with you tomorrow. Have a great day. Warthog Command Center out.